0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts, stocks tracking, interactive charts, and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. U.S. equity markets close at fresh record highs after President Trump finally signs a fresh $900 billion stimulus package as Congress approves higher COVID checks for Americans. European ambassadors unanimously approved the post-Brexit trade deal days before the end of the transition period, with the UK Parliament set to vote on the agreement tomorrow. China's central bank turns up the heat on Ant Group, publicly ordering the group to rectify its regulatory failings. And Europe's newly launched mass vaccination efforts are set for a boost with the UK due to approve the Oxford University AstraZeneca vaccine this week. Good morning everybody and thank you for joining me on this december evening well december morning rather (laughs) for squawk box the last couple of days of the trading year before we get into everything related to the brexit deal that came out on christmas eve i just want to go over the main story from the u.s yesterday and that is that the u.s house of representatives has voted to increase stimulus checks to americans leaving it to the senate to approve the direct payments this comes just a day after President Trump signed the $2.3 trillion federal funding bill, including a $900 billion pandemic aid package. And we've been talking about the passage of the stimulus bill for the better path, a better part of the last couple of months. It has finally come through. So the reaction was quite positive for Wall Street in trading yesterday. Record highs yet again for these indices. We've got the NASDAQ tech index up three quarters of a percentage point, 94 points on the session yesterday. but. Um, uh, worth bearing in mind that the Nasdaq for the year is up almost 45% for 2020, the year of the pandemic, a very strong year for the tech sector and for tech IPOs. S&P 500 up about 30 points, about nine tenths of a percentage point higher, and then the Dow through that 30,000 level uh, we have been the last couple of sessions. 30,400 is where we're up. 200 points yesterday and 7 tenths of a percentage point higher so strong gains across the board for wall street let's see how the handover was for asian markets and there again the picture was pretty green we've got the nikkei In Japan, up at twenty-seven thousand five hundred seventy, up seven hundred points, two point seven percent higher. Very strong session for Japan. Back at records not seen in thirty years. So a big recovery for the Japanese index. There, Hang Seng, up eight tenths of a percentage point, but still some weakness coming through on the Chinese index. The Shanghai Composite, down about four tenths of a percentage point. There, the big story has been that of the crackdown from the Chinese regulatory services over. Alibaba and some of their practices so Alibaba alone has lost about hundred billion dollars in market cap over the last couple of sessions so Chinese tech squarely in focus focus here looking ahead to the session today and this is the picture for US futures it looks as though it is also going to be yet another positive session for the US indices S&P 500 seen opening up about 18 points higher The Dow up about 180 points higher as well. So ending the last couple of days of the trading year in positive territory, going from strength to strength in U.S. indices. But let's turn our focus back to Europe again because big news, major news, the news we've all been waiting for the last couple of years. European ambassadors have approved a Brexit trade deal with the UK, with British lawmakers set to vote on the deal tomorrow. But UK Government Minister Michael Gove has warned that there will be bumpy moments as the country transitions onto the terms of the new agreement on January the 1st. So we are moving to a new trading relationship vis-a-vis the EU and it is going to take a bit of time to adjust to those new terms of the arrangement. So uh, businesses are expecting a bit of a bumpy ride at least in the first couple of months. Even though there are no tariffs and no quotas applied, there will be barrier checks, there will be border checks and a lot of those things are going to take time to get uh, up and running into the system. But let's take a look at how uh, European futures are reacting. We talked about the positive session for US markets, and today it looks as though we are indeed set for a positive session for Europe. So FTSE 100, all eyes on this UK index. I also want to remind you that the deal came out on Christmas Eve afternoon at around 3 p.m. The FTSE market had closed at around midday that day. So uh, this is the first trading session we're gonna get for the UK index since the deal has been inked. So FTSE Future is seen opening up 1.1% for the year. Though the FTSE is still down double digits territory. It's it's actually the first the worst year for the UK index since 2008 so we'll see whether or not this brexit trade deal changes things in 2021. Dax in germany seen opening up about 80 points higher six tenths of a percentage point firmer on the session and kakarante also seen opening up higher as well these two were actually trading yesterday and ended the session up in positive territory as well so a good couple of days for european markets but let me talk about what's been happening to the pound as well and it is one of those situations where we spent months and months and months talking about the pound and how it could react if we do get a deal well we've got a deal and the pound hasn't really done that much the reaction the last couple of sessions has actually been pretty underwhelming i would say we we're trading at around 135 going into this uh, into the announcement uh, last week and we're pretty much round there now 134.80 is where we're at up 0.2 percent but i think the bigger picture for the pound is what has happened over the last uh, couple of months or so because we have rallied into uh, december and you can see the last month we're up about 1.3 percent but of course versus the lows of the year the pounds back in spring got as low as around 117, 118. So The theme has been one of strength headed into December. And that tells you that the market from the very beginning always assumed that the two sides would get to a deal, even though there was a lot of hesitancy out there, at least from the policymakers' standpoint. And there were moments where we didn't think that the deal would get over the line. But here we are, the pound is trading just shy of 135 quite a substantial comeback we've seen for the uh, for the sterling uh, currency pair this year in 2020. But right let's get out to Sylvia who uh, has been monitoring all the ins and outs of Brexit for the better part of the last couple of years Sylvia and we all listened to uh, Ursula von der Leyen and Prime Minister Boris Johnson give their speeches and and their takes on the Brexit deal on Christmas Eve afternoon and I just want to quote you something that Ursula von der Leyen said she said you know, at the end of negotiations, I normally feel joy, but today I only feel quiet satisfaction and relief. Parting is such a sweet sorrow. So we finally got the deal over the line, but perhaps you know for many, this is also a sad moment. So what has been the reaction from Brussels and from other policymakers that you speak to?
2: Well, you're right that this is a difficult moment for the EU as a whole, because this is the first time ever that a country is actually leaving the EU. The formal departure actually happened in January of this year. Uh, But now this trade agreement is the last big step in this uh, long process. And it is not with happiness that the EU has uh, announced in a way that this is coming to, to an end. But the... Indeed, the trade agreement was the Christmas gift that many in Europe wanted, because without an agreement, the, the Brexit process would have ended in a much more complicated um, manner. But let's look at some of the detail in, in this uh, agreement, manner. For instance, when it comes to the level playing field, we know this was one of the most complicated matters for the negotiators. The UK will be able to set its own standards, for instance, on labor law and environmental laws. Um, But if the EU deems that European businesses are at an unfair position as a result of these rules, then the EU will be able to apply tariffs on UK products and vice versa. It is also important to note that this agreement states that European companies will be able to challenge state aid given by the UK government uh, if they feel that that help does not comply with the agreement that was put together. When it comes to fisheries as well, this was the reason why on Christmas Eve, the announcement of an agreement kept being pushed. And they also uh, reached a breakthrough when it comes to fisheries. And the result is that there will be a five and a half year transition period. And after that period, then there will be annual negotiations. And if at any point the UK government decides to put a total end to uh, to access to UK waters by European fishermen, then the latter will be able to receive compensation from the EU, and the EU will also be able to apply tariffs on UK fish. But overall, though, the more than 1,200 pages are still being scrutinised. And many uh, think tank experts are still looking at that detail, for instance, lawyers as well. And when it comes to lawmakers who have to ratify this deal, well, the European Parliament is not able to give its approval before the end of the year. And that's why we saw yesterday European ambassadors provisionally approving this agreement. And then that means that European lawmakers will be able to fully scrutinize the detail of this agreement in the early part of 2021. And then, of course, the UK lawmakers will also have to approve this deal at some point. We're expecting that to happen on Wednesday. But these legislative steps, though, are expected to just be a formality in the end, Germana.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you for running us through the highlights of the deal and also what, to, what can be expected in terms of next steps. Sylvia, to your point, we actually do have a European policymaker on the show this morning. I want to bring in Luis Garicano, a member of the European Parliament and vice chair of the, the Renew Europe group. Uh, sir, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today on the show. I just want to start off by asking you, you know, your take on the deal. And are you happy that this is finally behind us?
0: I think, as, as you mentioned before, it's a bittersweet moment for many of us in Europe. It's, uh, it's, it's sad that a country chose to, to leave in, in a way that many of us found um, unwarranted or based on argument, but not necessarily clearly clearly spelled out. But on the other hand, we're very happy that uh, this, this deal has happened. That uh, process has come to an end. It's taken a huge amount of energy, and I think um, it has proven that the European institutions work. Uh, we have seen more unity coming from uh, the European Union, from 27 countries, than coming from the inside of the conservative party in those four years. And I think that's that's a testament. To the strength of of the European Union institutions.
1: Do you think the EU did enough here to preserve the integrity of the single markets coming out of this pro- post-Brexit world?
0: Well, there was a, there was a huge challenge, which is that um, to a sovereign state you like the UK, you're not going to be able to say. Um, you will just simply apply whatever rules the European Parliament uh, and and the Council of Ministers passes. I mean, that was clear from the start. And on the other hand, we really do need a level playing field. So the agreement comes up with a set of institutions that mirror, to some extent, the Commission, that have the European Commission that have five-year periods that last the last four similar periods as the European Commission. This, this partnership council that meets in London and in Brussels and that basically makes the rules in a similar way as the European Commission and the European institutions do right now. Um, that, um, I think, aims to to preserve these this, this common rules. And I think that largely it achieves the objective that was uh, designed to which is ensuring that, that there are no uh, <laughs> there's no uh, a country a lower state uh, sitting outside of the European Union just trying to arbitrage its rules
1: just going back to that topic of arbitrage or a level playing field to your point i mean some of the criticism already already being leveled at this deal is that there isn't a a, a swift enough retaliation process should one of the parties of the deal renege on promises. So there would be an adjudication process. The European Court of Justice isn't going to be the ultimate arbiter. Uh, do you think that because there are obstacles in terms of the adjudication process, that that, in, in effect, actually takes away some of the uh, big achievements of the deal? Because it does open the door up a little bit to, to your point, arbitrage.
0: No, there is there is there is clearly an issue of whether they warrant the warrant the the mechanisms are going to be enough. I I think that because uh, it's only a deal covering trade at this point, uh, and because uh, there are, there is clearly a border uh, on, on 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 between Northern Ireland and the UK, meaning in Henry Bridget, sorry, um, and with Britain. Sorry, there is a sense that that the deal goes as far as as it could as it could possibly go. We have five years to try it out. We can try it out with trade. You makes clearly this kind of hint that that it's open to complementing it, and particularly with financial services. And in that sense, um, we're putting it on trial with the smallest part of our relationship, which is trade, and hopefully it's going to work out and we're going to be able to extend to financial services and the rest where all of those concerns about uh, level playing field are particularly
1: what do you think Brexit and this whole Brexit experience has done to the cohesiveness of the European project over the last couple of years? And you know, I remember when the Brexit referendum happened in 2016, there was concern that other countries within the EU would try to follow the UK. Is that a concern, a lingering concern for the future, or do you think that Europe is going to come out of this stronger and more together?
0: I think it has undoubtedly been a positive. There is no question about it from that, strictly from that perspective. And I think the piece, the clear piece of evidence to that is the recovery and reconstruction and uh, resilience plan. Uh, the, the 750 billion uh, euro uh, mechanism that was proposed in July and that uh, was finally approved now this December. There is no way that the United Kingdom, being inside so the European Union, that the United Kingdom would not veto this. It would—it would just have been impossible to approve a, a a program with such levels of fiscal solidarity with a common response, uh, response. and response. And look at what, what we have accomplished this year. We have a, a rule of law mechanism that allows the European Union. To withdraw aid from, from countries that don't respect common values. We have a, a recovery facility, 750 billion. Uh, we have a budget. We have the vaccine process, which has been done in common in Europe. I, I think that what we see is a more cohesive and a more united Europe uh, that has a more clear uh, common interest and a way to attain this common interest. So in that sense, I think uh, Europe is is more likely to be cohesive in the future than, than
1: before. Mm. Well, finally, I've got to ask you, uh, we're only getting to Europe, European parliamentary ratification now. You only have a couple of days to review what's more than 1,200 pages of documents of really specific detail. Uh, do you wish that the European Parliament had been more involved in the process or had been given more time to review these documents?
0: Well, I mean ideally a document of this entity wouldn't get put uh, before parliaments on the 24th of December. Um, We are going to apply provisionally and then spend our our time carefully scrutinizing it. So that's second best, uh, I feel Michel Barnier has done an outstanding job. He has come to the group gatherings, the the, the gatherings of the political parties. He has come in front of the Brexit committee. Uh, He has been an outstanding negotiator, and and I think this is the best. He's done the best of a really tricky situation. So um, we'll do our job. We'll scrutinize it, and hopefully, all of this uh, provisional application, which starts uh, on the first of January, will turn into a permanent application very soon.
1: we'll we'll leave it there thank you so much for joining us today and i know no doubt you're going to be very busy the next couple of days overviewing that document in extensive detail luis garicano the member of the european parliament and vice chair of renew europe listen to cnbc's beyond the valley the podcast that explores
2: the biggest tech news from across the globe join me arjun Karpal, and me tom chitty every week as we bring you insights into the top stories unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google
1: Podcasts. I want to bring in our first guest as well uh, for the day. Uh, Michael Harris, the founder of Cribstone Strategic Macro joins us uh, down the line. Michael, it's great to have you on the show uh, this December morning. I want to start off with uh, a Brexit discussion. And one of the things that we've talked a lot about on this show is the deep discount that UK assets are trading at Versus European and, and US equivalents. And here I'm not just talking about stock markets, I'm talking about the pound possibly still being undervalued or underowned uh, versus other currency pairs. How do you think about the investment landscape in 2021 in the UK? And now that the deal is over the line, are you tempted to jump in?
3: Well, no, I think absolutely. Um, and and I, I've been, you know, just from a personal perspective, uh, definitely jumping in very, very aggressively. Uh, and and that's on the view that, um, you know, one, we had to have a deal. It was clear that uh, politically there would be a disaster, but the market wasn't ready for that. The market needed to actually see it uh, because, uh, because of all the bravado and the negotiating stance. So what we've removed here is uncertainty that has lingered over Pretty powerful economy, with a lot of potential economic mojo for that has been, you know, weighing on this market for many, many years. So to think that we're going to see the market move in the pound, um, in in uh, equities, um, happen and occur in a relatively short period of time after so many years of uncertainty, uh, I think is is um, is wrong. I think basically we are going to have a prolonged period of repositioning because the UK is effectively open again. You may not like the deal. You may think that the UK sacrificed a lot to get here, and they did. The finance sector and the city probably have. But ultimately, uh, businesses can invest again with clarity on what is happening. And that is going to be quite, quite powerful. So uh, I I would be very, very surprised if this is not a year where the pound is one of the biggest performers amongst global currencies.
1: Mm, Well, actually, uh, to your point, where do you see the pound going?
3: Well, I, I, I think, you know, I, I probably one of the, the worst calls I made, but I think the spirit of it was there. This time last year, I was talking 165. Okay. And my view is the market should understand that a no deal is absolutely impossible. What's the point of signing a transition? So we've waited this year effectively in a holding pattern on the currency. We start the year not too much better than, when, than where we started last year. Um, and, and I think, you know, that sentiment is still there. 165 is not going to be reached this year. But I think it's not impossible to reach that on an 18 to 36 month view. If, if um, things play out as I suspect, if the UK is open again for business, which it effectively is, uh, I would be really, really surprised if we don't see the pound in, in an environment where there is so much malaise globally. Uh, and there is a, a strong cyclical and combines with a structural story. Again, we sacrificed a lot. So a lot of people question the structural benefits of this. But you have to keep in mind, Brexit was already baked in, everyone understood the UK was doing some self-harm. And now we're at a stage where we can at least move forward. So I would be surprised if we don't end up well into the uh, 140s, touching 150 uh, this year. But the longer term trajectory, I think, is extremely bullish.
1: Going back to the FTSE 100, I commented earlier that the FTSE is down almost 14% for 2020 as a whole. It's actually the worst year for the UK index since 2008. And and somebody responded, this was on Twitter, and I thought this was a really good point saying, well, if you look at the components of the FTSE 100, a lot of the sectors are backward looking. It's the old economy. We're talking about basic resources, mining, energy stocks, travel, all of these sectors that either got hit very hard by COVID or relate to industries that would have been very successful four or five years ago. But looking ahead, obviously the world is changing. Uh, What is your take on that narrative? And do you think that there's potential for the UK to stand out in some of the forward-looking industries as well, like clean energy?
3: Oh, no, no, without a doubt. I think this deal, the interesting part of the deal is how anchored it is in energy, uh, sorry, in in the environment and and the Paris Accords. Uh, And so ultimately, there's a huge leeway for subsidies associated with clean energy. So this whole idea of a level playing field, the UK can really take advantage of that because you're effectively being given a green light on subsidies. So that's longer term, that's not in terms of the current constituents of the index. And the index, as you said, is is biased towards cyclical winners associated with a weak pound in terms of the global businesses and the domestic businesses, which have been um, less compelling. So that that will change a bit, but I feel strongly that the big driver for global equities, and ultimately for UK equities, is going to be driven by what happens in the US. Uh, The US is the stimulus that matters. And, uh, ultimately we just got this, you know, package for the time being. So we're fighting the war well. But the big question in the U.S. is how does the U.S. rebuild after the war? The U.S. doesn't have a good culture when it comes to rebuilding. It knows how to fight wars. So we'll spend more money as long as COVID is a problem. But when it no longer is, uh, the the debate about spending money is going to become quite uncertain. So that what happens in the Georgia elections are crucially important. The market definitively wants the, the Democrats to win both seats, because in the absence of that, we have a, a hostile Senate that ultimately sees a risk of 12 years of democratic rule on the view that, that Biden is only a one-termer and effectively because he won't be leaving after fatigue associated with him, or because he loses, whoever wins in, two, in, in uh, 2024 is ultimately going to be very likely to be there for another eight years. So the NPV for the Republican Party is very focused on disrupting. Uh, and, and probably the one thing that, uh, they're most interested in disrupting is actually the equity markets as the barometer. They probably, you know, fundamentally don't want the U.S. economy to be hurt in a big way, but I, I can see a scenario where they will obstruct. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, if we, and and the likelihood in the, in the election in Georgia is, one party's getting both seats. The nature, You don't split your Senate votes. You right. split your presidential Senate votes, but wh- whoever wins this is going to be in a very strong driver's seat when it comes to what happens in the US Senate. And I think that's gonna be the ultimate driver for equity markets. Yeah. The pound I think happens regardless, mm-hmm. but we could have a very bad year for equity markets at some stage if, if we uh, get that uh, Republican resistance, because when the war is done, when the vaccine is there, and the collateral damage needs to be dealt with, uh, I think the track record of the U.S. is they are going to underwhelm with their response uh, unless we have a very, very strong democratic agenda. And, and so I, I really think there's a lot, a lot at play in this Georgia uh, Senate election. Yeah,
1: well, maybe the Republicans will go back to being the party of uh, the fiscal hawks again uh, once uh, right,
3: without a doubt that no the COVID crisis they, they is point. over. They will play that part aggressively.
1: So uh, I actually want to bring up another point, uh, which is uh, an interesting one that you raised as well. And that is sort of like the legacy and the, the long term scarring of the pandemic, because this fiscal stimulus has come out. And I read yesterday, for example, Goldman Sachs have put out their uh, forecast for GDP for next year up at 5%, that's almost 2% higher than consensus here. A lot of people are revising upwards their GDP projections, but, and I know you've done a lot of work on this, GDP doesn't adequately reflect what's actually going on uh, on the ground. And we talk a lot about the K-shaped recovery. The rich have got richer, the poor have got poorer as a, fun- a function of this pandemic. How should the system be thinking about this? And. And what is a more accurate way of measuring what's actually happening on the ground if GDP isn't accounting for those uh, distribution issues that are going on between the very rich parts of society versus the very poor?
3: Yeah, I think we've seen with all the social upheaval from Brexit to to what's happened in the US um, with Trump uh, and, and Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, I think we're at the stage where the, the conventional wisdom is there's something inherently unsustainable about what's going on. And we need, we need more north-south equality in the UK. We need more equitable distribution. And GDP as it stands, everyone knows is the wrong proxy. I mean, it's obviously, if, if GDP growth is super strong, then it is going to lift boats, but it's not strong enough that it can lift everyone. Uh, so, um, yeah, that on that basis, I mean, I, I would have thought one of the easiest things to do is an adjustment to GDP. Where all you're doing is you're saying if you if you grow 4%, let's say, which is, you know, might have which will probably happen this year, but ultimately it's not a sustainable number, but you haircut it or you adjust it based upon the percentage of the population that's better off from one year to the next from an asset and an income perspective. It's a simple calculation. If someone's better off, they count as a positive. If they're not, they count as a negative. So if 50% of the population is better off than they were a year before, your 4% GDP growth becomes 2% inclusive GDP growth. And and it sounds a very simple, crude measure, but it will achieve a lot because if what you're working towards is important, and if the message is we're working towards an equality-adjusted GDP, and this is a very simple calculation, actually, how to get there, then then policy will move in that direction. When you're working towards GDP, you're not thinking about inequality. It only smacks you in the face when it actually becomes painful but if removing inequality um, is, and you could still have income disparity here, The, the wealthier could be doing much, much better in a given year, but the key point is, if an individual is not doing better one year versus the previous year, they're a negative for you in that inclusive GDP perspective. So I would like to see economists get a little creative. They talk about it over and over and over, but we have a simple policy measure. Let's just have some sort of international committee, let the IMF lead it, let the World Bank lead it, let someone lead it. Hopefully it'll happen from the US government, where we get a simple definition of how to align policy with working against these inefficiencies and and inequalities that are ultimately negative for us all economically. This is not a social agenda. This is simply let's have everybody benefiting from one year to the next. And I think no one can disagree with that objective. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com.